Hello and welcome to Coin Talk. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-host Jay Kang is on the road this week, which meant that I could uh, hold off on the episode because I wanted to wait until these uh, Senate hearings happened. They happened today. It's Thursday. Uh, I'm calling. I'm about to call uh, Zach Vol, who is a uh, analyst at Masari and a podcaster himself. And more importantly, was at the hearings. So we're going to get a uh, firsthand account of the uh, wrestling-like uh, proceedings within. Uh, we're brought to you, as always, in partnership with Medium. Uh, they've got a great collection of 12 extended long-form features about crypto. It's at read.medium.com slash crypto. All right, let's hear the music and play the show. This episode was taped Thursday, October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $2,480. Zach, hello. Aaron, good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So you were at the hearings today. You must have had to hustle home uh, for this call. Well, actually, I feel like I didn't get my money's worth watching because it was a pretty short hearing. Um, I was expecting a little bit more. Uh, a lot of the committee members were missing. Um, the question, the round of questioning was relatively short, much shorter than I expected. Yeah, it um, it felt like a like uh, like a stunt hearing, not a full hearing. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, so. I'm trying to think. This is at least the second hearing that I've streamed. What was the first time this issue came up uh, in a, in a Senate commission-y kind of way? Yeah. Um, so I remember. I, I couldn't tell you the first time offhand. Um, yeah, but I remember going. That was an unfairly trick question. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I I can say though, and one of my favorite Senate hearing crypto memories is um, from a hearing, and I desperately have tried to find where this clip is because I know I had it at some point, but the chairman of, I want to say this, the same committee that held the hearing today, um, the Senate banking committee, um, the chairman asked a question in early 2016, I think it was, um, something along the lines of whose face is on a Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> and obviously thanks to the work of some policy advocates in DC, they're slightly more educated on cryptocurrencies and public blockchain projects and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's it's increasingly the focus of a larger and larger number of Senate hearings. Um, and, and today was the, the latest one. Yeah, it's um, if I were to describe anything, I didn't stream the whole thing, but it's incredibly how banal this has become in government that um these hearings didn't even particularly move the market. I mean, these this is like a, almost a uh, footnote kind of a hearing. Yeah, yeah. You would you would see um, big committee hearings on blockchain or cryptocurrency or some sort of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency related regulation, and people would freak out and. Um, I guess they say in bear mar bear mar or uh, bull markets react to good news and brush off bad news. Bear markets brush off good news and react to bad news. So I guess a committee hearing more often than not is probably good news. And given the bear market trend, brushing it off um, could just be typical behavior for the, the market cycle we're in right now. I'm not sure. But it is, it is sort yeah. of becoming very commonplace, which 
in my opinion, is a good thing. In the, the opinion of many like crypto anarchists, not a good thing. But say la vie. Yeah, I um. So as an outsider, and the way that most of the hearing was covered, it seems like the big testimonies were uh, Noriel Rabini and Peter Van Valkenburg. Uh, did I mi- did I miss other hits, or was that the like Sports Center highlights uh, of the day? Yeah, those were the uh, those were the big witnesses. It was um, very interesting. It was a smaller hearing, I guess, partly because some of the committee members were missing, um, and even the the committee itself, like you mentioned, seemed to sort of regard it as maybe more of a footnote than a headlining committee hearing. But it was just Peter and Noriel um, testifying before the committee today. And I know Coin Center and a bunch of um, crypto Twitter users um, sort of loved that experience of having these two people with diametrically opposite views on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and open blockchains. Um, testifying in tandem with each other. Um, it, it was a pretty pretty interesting event, pretty great event in that sense. It's They're interesting uh, foils for each other. Uh, Peter has been on, on the show before, and I, I would say um, my bias is probably in his favor here. But in a traditional uh, showdown like this, you would expect it to be one person is advocating for lots of government oversight and regulation, and one side is arguing for no government or minimal government oversight and regulation. And actually what you have between the two of them is uh, one person who's saying, this is a total scam with zero redemptive value, and the other one saying, uh, we would like it to be regulated more or less the way we've regulated financial products for the last 100 years. It's been working well. Let's keep doing it. This isn't exactly the battle I would have predicted a few years ago. Sure, that's more than fair. Um, about Peter specifically, I totally agree. He's, well, every time I've heard him speak, I should say, his opinions and, and testimony or interviews are always objectively quite compelling and his demeanor is very calm and persuasive. Um, he's an excellent communicator and obviously whip smart as well. Um, a pretty lethal combination and we're lucky to have him on our side. Um, and every also, more often than not, I'm hesitant to say every time I've heard him speak, but I can't think of a time that I haven't heard him advocate for regulation using the phrase light touch, which is sort of Coin Center's brand. Um, to sort of protect the innovative potential and disruptive upside of open public blockchains like Bitcoin um, by encouraging regulators to educate themselves and regulate accordingly, but understand that a lot of existing regulation is sufficient for the type of things they're trying to accomplish and not stifle the potential of these projects. And those are the talking points Peter uh, stuck to in his testimony today, among a couple other things. And Noriel, as... I mean, his academic pedigree is is quite seminal, quite impressive, um, but he came across as, um, in the hearing specifically, maybe a little bit too aggressive, and definitely on Twitter afterwards, um, you might say a little bit unhinged um, with his emotive uh, reaction to the hearing and commentary about it on Twitter and that sort of thing. Um, it's... Well, he's he's gone this far with this uh, this uh, take. Like, 
this is no time to quit now uh, at the Senate hearing. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, I feel like this is the grand finale of the opera that Nouriel Roubini has been writing. Um, he's, uh, along with our former guest, Adrian Chen, I think one of the uh, top three no-coiners in the world. And mm. to me, a no-coiner is not defined by not simply not having coins, but in some ways being animated by your um, anger and um, uh, disapproval of coins. Not anger. It can't even be lighthearted, I think. But a true no-coiner is someone who is obsessed with what's wrong with Bitcoin. <laughs> and I think that's that's Nouriel. What I sometimes feel like is missing in his voice being the... Um, you know, the great no coiner voice of his era is someone saying, uh, Bitcoin and crypto is serious and is dangerous and real. Like his dismissal of it actually means that no one is making the case that Bitcoin, um, is a very real, um, perhaps inevitable phenomenon that is going to wreak havoc on financial systems, which I'm not sure is my own personal belief, but I think it's a case that I'd like to see made um, by people who both sort of believe in the power of coins and that there is, uh, to put it in a fully comic bookian sense, um, a great destructive power that goes behind that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think his opinion, which he's expressed obviously on Twitter and in certain publications and definitely in the hearing this morning, is that blockchain and other public blockchains, or excuse me, Bitcoin and other public blockchains have essentially zero utility whatsoever and he expects them to sort of be tra tossed into the trash heap of history within i guess a couple years maybe and forgotten about completely or simply be the the um butt of certain jokes for for however long into the future and i think i, I totally agree i think his dismissal of the fact that anything like bitcoin bitcoin or, or another blockchain could possibly have any utility is a little bit short-sighted, a little bit um, ill-informed and just, just sort of wrong. Um, I think it's relatively obvious that something like Bitcoin, if not Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin, but if not Bitcoin, something like Bitcoin will always exist. Um, the, the technology is quite special and maybe literally everyone on the planet won't own Satoshis um, or use Bitcoin in some way, shape or form or something like Bitcoin, but it's not just going to disappear in a year or two or even a decade. Um, I think his dismissal is a, a little bit misguided. I mean, that's sort of um, Nicholas Taleb's view is that now that the idea cat is out of the bag, it's never going back in. It may not be called Bitcoin or even look particularly like Bitcoin in its final state, but that you can't um, take back ideas like this, um, which is, again, to me, like a weird positive and negative statement about crypto. I think that speaks both to its uh, the fact that the Senate has to consider it and also that um, they should not consider it without a certain gravity. Um, and I couldn't help but while I was watching the live stream think about the last time I heard someone describing technology in a hearing, which was Zuckerberg uh, testifying. So this is happening amidst a kind of a weird season for uh, tech uh, talking to uh, to government. Yeah, the um, the intersection of tech and the state is increasingly uh, pronounced 
And in some cases, that's good. In some cases, I would suggest that's not so good. Um, you mentioned Talib's uh, commentary on on technology and that sort of thing, and um, I think his um, idea of the Lindy effect, um, popularized in Bitcoin circles by Nick Carter of Venture Island Capital or Castle Island Ventures, excuse me. Um, the fact that the longer something exists, the longer you can expect it to continue to exist is very accurate going again to Norell's probably misguided dismissal of Bitcoin and open blockchains. Um, but I think one thing I, I will note um, that you may not have seen on the C-SPAN live stream of the hearing but was also very telling of the demeanor of the two witnesses and the reception of their testimonies by members of the committee is certain facial expressions and gestures and nonverbal communication between members of the committee. Specifically, I remember seeing Senator Warren interact with Peter after he finished a bit of his testimony answering one of her questions. Um, and he was he was cut off or cut short, um, and she just smiled and said thank you and like with an understanding nod and that sort of thing. Um, and it, he, Peter received those sorts of um, nonverbal communications from other members of the committee, but n nothing like that was paid to uh, Dr. Rubini. Um, and again, I think something we discussed I guess a few minutes ago that goes to the fact of or Peter's demeanor and his his pathos, his effective communication, um, his skill as an orator is is always on display. And the aggressive brand of Dr. Rubini is not always well accepted. It's interesting because in a way, I feel like we should never hear from either of them again. Not no no shade <laughs> to Peter Van Valkenburg, but it's a little strange to take a, a pretty broad issue that affects... Um, millions if not billions of people around the world and be like we're just going to continually hear from this angry professor and this head of a coin lobbying center from it like it feels like there has to be a greater diversity of viewpoints than that but again to call myself out i don't know who i'd suggest uh, in either of their places yeah i i guess i agree that a wider diversity of expert witnesses um is always better than less diverse, a less diverse pool of witnesses. Um, I know Dr. Rabini and Mr. Van Valkenburg have been on a plethora of um, congressional panels as expert witnesses. Um, but I know a variety of people who I interact with on Twitter and Telegram and Slack and other social media platforms that would be exceptional witnesses. Um, and maybe to my knowledge, maybe I'm forgetting or am unaware, but um, have not testified so far. I'm thinking specifically of a number of attorneys and lawyers who are exceptionally sharp minds commenting on events in the crypto space um, and always temper their opinions with a healthy dose of skepticism, sometimes more than is palatable to diehard crypto enthusiasts. Um, but I agree. A, a, I think I think Peter's testimony is to, or was today and always is um, good. Um, I obviously think the opposite of uh, most things that Dr. Rubini said today and usually says, um, but there are a wide variety of individuals who are actively contributing to and thinking about things happening in this space that I would love to see on similar panels talking to these lawmakers. Um, and I guess I should say the downside or the unfortunate thing 
is that many of these super smart individuals are of the uh, anarcho-capitalist, anarchist, crypto-anarchist variety and have zero interest in talking to anyone associated with lawmaking. Um, and that's a discussion for a whole other whole other time. But um, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, a, a wider variety of expert witnesses would be great. I mean, maybe like an Andreas Antonopoulos type, someone who who is not doesn't have like uh, such a clear like skin in the game or, or a professional association, but has been sort of uh, pursuing it independently. That seems like the best kind of witness. But I understand also that the nature of hearings is to take diametrically opposed views rather than like someone who is charting a middle or moderate course. Um, so maybe what I'm asking for is actually the same thing everyone's asking for uh, from politics, which is not to gravitate immediately to the extremes which we seem to have trouble doing uh, in a variety of ways. But, you know, what I was th- the, the other thing I was thinking while I was watching this, I don't know if this occurred to you, was um, how dramatically different these hearings would be if Satoshi was not anonymous. If there was a person behind Bitcoin who had to stand up and defend it and explain how it was going to work and uh, um, apologize for its every shortcoming or tout its every success, I think it would have a lot, a much bigger vector of attack. But the fact that there's not a person there who's the uh, proverbial CEO of Bitcoin uh, means that everyone who's talking about it is not really a, like a firsthand source. Um, there's no like real spokesperson for Bitcoin out there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think a useful corollary is considering if Dogecoin was Bitcoin um, and we hauled Jackson Palmer in front of the House and the Senate every uh, multiple times every session to testify about the scams being built on top of or financed with Dogecoins or something. Um, the project. And Noriel Rubini's testimony would be aimed like, <laughs> hey, you, Jackson, you know, Jackson, you specifically, this is your fault. Korean pensioners are losing their shirt because of you, you know, like there'd be a, a, a person to wag the finger at. Exactly, exactly. And I think that would be a disaster for the project. Um, I'm, I'm infinitely grateful, as I think are almost every Bitcoiner, the, all Bitcoiners, that Satoshi is anonymous. Um, if in fact they are still alive, um, but I think, I like I would to my knowledge this has never happened, and I would love to be corrected by your listeners. You can find me on Twitter and tweet at me if I'm incorrect, but I don't know if any. Even if he's right, just yell at him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know of any core contributors who have gone before um, the House or the Senate and testified in the U.S. or elsewhere. And Interesting. I think, I think their testimony would be crucial because they're the ones, or Bitcoin miners for that for that uh, matter, people who are running and building big mining farms. Um, we've had plenty of exchanges. We've had some attorneys who um, are working in this nascent field of crypto law and regulation and whatnot, but no core developers and no big Bitcoin miners, to my knowledge, and their testimonies are just as important, if not more important, than the policy advocates and attorneys and whatnot. Um, I really think congressional panels should work, congressional committees should work to have those people on their panels. Um, their testimony would be invaluable. You you heard it, Jihan Wu. Just come testify. <laughs> uh, so, so actually, I did hear um, in the section I listened to, it did seem like the centralization of mining um, is an issue that's of interest to to politicians. 
Yes, there were a couple of questions about the centralization of mining. Um, the oligopoly of Bitcoin miners, as Dr. Rabini put it. And yeah. I think Bitman went public this week, right? Or like last week? Um, I think that's correct. I'm honestly, I sort I know, of. It seems like it's gone public several different times. Depends where you gauge it. But basically, these hearings are happening in the midst of the public yeah. offering of Bitman. Yeah, they. I'll I'll shill really quickly. My colleague at Masari, um, Catherine Wu, she is super sharp and has um, written a bunch of tweets and a few articles on the the IPO for Bitmain. Um, a little bit of a messy situation. Definitely check that out. But this Senate hearing is happening as all of that um, stuff is going down. And Dr. Rubini uh, basically answered one of the committee members that who asked him if mining centralization is inherent to bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies he basically said yes um yeah and controversial question yeah yeah exactly um and uh giacomo zucco of the bhb foundation um basically agreed yeah it's inherent and he and i were going back and forth a little bit on twitter this afternoon i took exception with the use of the word inherent as if there's no alternative it's just the way it is when quite obviously bitcoin mining was at first incredibly decentralized well i guess satoshi was the only one mining so highly centralized <laughs> but it became ex exceptionally decentralized much more so than you might say it is now and now we're seeing a trend towards centralization again Obviously, centralization is a tendency for mining of any cryptocurrency, but I think it's definitely not inherent. And the efforts of people like Matt Corallo and other developers to build alternatives to mining that allow it to be increasingly decentralized are essential. Um, I strongly disagree with Dr. Rubini that it's inherently centralized. Um, and I don't. Yeah, it seems like remember. that's just the timeline we're on now. You know, exactly. Like. And, and we're only about, we're not even, I mean, we're almost on the 10th anniversary. We're barely a decade in. Um, and Bitcoin, as I said, has gone from insanely centralized, that being one or two people, Hal, Finney, and Satoshi, to exceptionally decentralized. A lot of people trying to mine Bitcoin with GPUs and whatnot, um, to now big mining farms being set up and maybe an um, uncomfortable level of centralization of mining. But I think it's always useful to remember that in these discussions about mining and centralization and decentralization in, in general, it's it's not a binary term. It's very uh, gradient. So one person's decentralized is another person's centralized. And it's always excellent, especially in the context of Bitcoin and other open public blockchains, to work towards an increasing level of decentralization. But you can't just slap on a label, Bitcoin mining is now centralized because I mean, quite obviously, it's very decentralized, um, but it's just not as decentralized as some people would prefer. And there are some problems with the level of centralization it's at right now. But it's it's a very fluid term. It's not binary. And I think that context is very important and usually lacking from discussions about mining centralization. Well, I don't think we'd be discussing mining centralization if the centralization was in America. Um, I think... <laughs> The important part of the mining centralization is that it happens to be located in a country uh, that has a trade war brewing with the United States. And potentially, I think it could be argued, I'm interested in what your colleague uh, Catherine Wu would think about this, that the biggest winners of the uh, crypto economic boom so far have been Chinese miners. That uh, if you look at like 
which um, player in the game's position I would take of any seat at the table right now, they've got a pretty good business. There's some cracks in the Bitmain uh, armor, but for the most part, uh, it's been a really good business. I mean, from what I've heard about people who who spend time in, in crypto China, they're not even particularly interested in holding coins. They're mostly just interested in the mining business. So I feel like it's a very specific timeline we're on, and it's butting up against this major world narrative, which is uh, Trump coming to a head with China. Yeah, I agree. Those the mining centralization in China narrative and the the trade war between the U.S. and China narrative are are definitely coming to a head. Um, I think the uh, I think it's important to note though that obviously all Bitcoin mining doesn't take place in China, and these discussions. Andreas Antonopoulos tweeted maybe a year or two ago or something that some of these conversations and they've done a decent job of getting better of this about this now. But definitely a year or two ago, um, sort of had undertones of xenophobia and racism and whatnot in them, sort of slamming the Chinese as like taking over Bitcoin and whatnot. But it's important to realize that a lot of other countries have huge um, mining farms being developed in them right now. A lot of these nations are ASEAN countries, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, like Vietnam, for example, big mining farms being built there. Um, right now, I'm in the D.C. metropolitan area, and in Virginia Beach, there's a huge mining farm, or relatively huge mining operation being built in an old um, brewery, factory building type thing. Um, and this is happening all over the world. So the fact that a lot of it was and a lot and a good amount of it continues to be bitcoin mining that is continues to happen in china um is not the way it always has been and is not definitely not the way it always will be at least in my somewhat optimistic but i also think realistic opinion and it's it's literally everyone's job in bitcoin to work to decentralize mining so if you're not using a simple client like um nice hash or honey miner or something to run on your pc and decentralize mining your shout out to Honey Miner. They came yeah. on the show. I'm, oh. I'm um, I, at my chair has a soft cushion of a Honey Miner T-shirt that they gave me. So <laughs> this is a great lesson, everyone. If you send me a T-shirt, I will refer to it on air. <laughs> I love I love the Honey Miner team. Um, and if you if you are if you like Bitcoin and if you're also worried about mining centralization, download Honey Miner and start mining some satoshis on your PC. You won't have a massive effect, but neither does your node singularly have a massive effect on the network security. It's everyone's job to do their part. Um, And that sounds really communist, (laughs) but it's true. Do your part, secure the network, decentralize mining, and we can try and make this thing work together. Yeah, I mean, on some level, um, it seems narratively appropriate that this huge mining concern would land in China. And so far as I think we've already seen with like, the whole idea of mining that like, even though Bitcoin is a virtual currency, it takes on many of the same, uh, Safedine Amos writes about in his book, you still have to do things that are difficult that resemble physical mining. Um, just like it's cheaper to make goods in China, there is a profit motive, uh, where at least for the very early part of Bitcoin's history, uh, China has been one of the cheapest places in the world to produce Bitcoin with electricity. Yeah, exactly. The um, electricity arbitrage and the um, Bitcoin as a catalyst for cheap electricity generation via renewable sources and whatnot um, 
are huge points of discussion in this debate. Excuse me, and we don't have to necessarily get into like the energy consumption debate right now. But um, I yeah, and it also point. gets into the chip debate. Like even if we had uh, like a flat price in electricity around the world, China would still probably be leading mining simply by access to chips that are developed in China. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but any market, electricity, um, mining chips, ASICs, uh, monies, anything has uh, where there's profit, there will be entrepreneurial talent attracted to making money and arbitrage away the profit. Um, and we're already seeing that happen in many aspects of Bitcoin and the resources it touches, and we'll continue to see that. Um, so it's a little bit ludicrous to think that the imperfections of Bitcoin's functionality right now will continue um, indefinitely into the future. Um, Zach, you are an analyst by trade, uh, which means you are uh, asked to take in information like these Senate hearings and um, come to conclusions based on it. So I'm curious, like, what is your information slash real world diet what are, what are your inputs like where does your impression of where bitcoin is come from sure that's a that's a great question um honestly something i think about quite frequently as i try to manage the content that i consume um i obviously spend and unfortunately more than i maybe like to admit waste a decent bit of time on twitter but it's obviously a valuable resource um, it's for work damn it it's it's for work exactly. Uh, um, I think I think efforts like this right here, podcasts, are one of the great things. That the, the one of the best educational resources in the space. Um, I host one myself, and I think I have interesting content. Medium posts are. Te hey, uh, tell yeah. the people where to subscribe to your podcast before I forget. Sure. Yeah. So Just it's, search the Coin Pod. One exactly. one word. Two words. Um, it's, it's, uh, well, three words at the coin pod. We're on Twitter and pretty much every podcast platform where you listen to podcasts. Um, check us out. We, we stick to shorter weekly episodes, um, than some of the other podcasters out there, but, uh, good conversations. It, it's exclusively Bitcoin. So we don't really talk about altcoins exclusively Bitcoin. Yeah. One of the um, things I like about the diversity of Bitcoin podcasts out there right now, I mean, I, I put quotation marks around diversity because there's probably uh, a lack of certain forms of diversity, but sure. like um, me, my co-host Jay call this a podcast for crypto moderates. Um, and I think wherever you like land on the like, um, you know, uh, moderate to like, I'm never eating another vegetable for the rest of my life <laughs> kind of spectrum, there's like a podcast for you somewhere in there. Absolutely. And I would say there's an episode in my podcast for you too, regardless of where you are, because I try to, and this show as well, your show does an excellent job of having a variety of guests, um, all of whom probably don't agree with each other on the show. But that's what makes, Absolutely. Our, that's what makes our conversations fun. Um, and I think the fact that we're even talking about this is a little bit of a shame. Like I respect people who have very strong opinions. I have plenty of opinions, um, strong opinions, but they're they're weakly held and e easy easily changeable. Um, but a yeah. lot of the the vitriol and aggression and whatnot antagonism in the Bitcoin space towards maximalists and heretics and all of this nonsense is like at, at, at the same time laughable and cringeworthy and just sad. 
Um, so hopefully that'll change in the future. I don't know. We'll see. But you're right. You can probably find a podcast for you out there. And podcasts are a great resource. Um, I was. Are, were you? Have you followed at all this whole um, uh, Meltem Demir's um, criticism that's been on the internet in the last couple of weeks? A bit. For, yeah. For people who haven't followed it, she's. Uh, she's a crypto person. She's been involved in, in several projects. And um, like everyone else, she uh, has both held shit coins and is now um, uh, rallying against shit coins. Um, so someone was sort of giving her crap about it and it, it touched off a larger debate. But I really think it's true like that if you're involved in crypto at all, even on a podcast level and your mind has not changed about something fundamental, like I don't know what you're doing. Like if there's ever been a space where you have got to believe some of your core opinions are going to change over time, it's this one. Oh, I 100% agree. Um, and I will say, I love Meltem. Um, I think her work and her opinions. I, are- I also apologize if I uh, mis- uh, mispronounced her name there, but I did feel like the criticism of her was un- unfair and unwarranted. I, I agree. Um, I think her, she's just a microcosm, a singular example, but people criticizing other persons for what they have in their portfolio, in my opinion, is total nonsense. Um, you should be criticized for trying to scam people out of what's in their portfolio or trying to misinform earnest, um, eager newcomers. But what you choose to spend your money on is really no one's business. And it's kind of the point of this whole thing. Like we should be able to buy and spend and transact with whomever we want for whatever we want, whenever we want. And if you're criticizing someone for buying shit coins, it's a little bit antithetical to the purpose of this whole experiment. Um, but people don't really like to think about that. I mean, uh, let uh, he or she who has never held uh, shit coins uh, first throw the first stone at the glass shit coin house. I mean, look, if it was a static quality of what was and was not a shit coin, no one would ever own shit coins. Like, shit coins are the story of people believing in something that's bullshit. And some of those people thought it was bullshit from the start and thought that they could make a good trade. And some people believed in it with all their heart and got made a bad trade. I mean, it it just feels to me like, um, I know that reporters are not really, um, supposed to hold coins, which is always an interesting thing. So of course, um, most of the journalistic institutions are, uh, no coiner because they're actually no coiner by policy. But one thing we've really espoused on this show is that there's a value in actually trying this stuff out for yourself. You know, like it's different to talk about, um, using Ethereum to buy an ERC-20 coin than it actually is to going and doing it yourself. And I have like very little belief that people who've never tried any of this stuff firsthand really have a grasp on it. Yeah, I totally agree um, with everything you said. Uh, two points in particular, the fact that using the thing and trying to store it securely and maybe mining it via some of these these lightweight clients like Nice hash and honey miner um, is totally different than just sort of opining on it and looking at it um, abstractly. Um, I also think, with regard to disclosures, it's a little bit odd, and I hope in the future we get away from 
especially with cryptocurrencies, but with maybe other things in general. I don't really, I don't really have enough of a qualified opinion to opine on that. But especially with cryptocurrencies, the forcing journalists to own nothing or specifically disclose what they own is a little bit of a futile effort because owning nothing sort of inhibits their or hamstrings their opinions in certain ways. And other people will disagree with me on that. But I think it's very important for if you're writing about cryptocurrency, because it is so new, to own some for an extended period of time, not some of these editorials where the journalist owns it for a week or something and then decides that that's sufficient and they can write about it now. But it should be to the point where we should just assume journalists own a little bit of everything, more or less, that everyone does. And if they write about a coin, the assumption that they do own it should just be instinctual, um, in part because it's impossible really to prove a negative. It's impossible to prove that you don't own something. Um, but also, it would just make coverage of these things much more simple, uh, much simpler to assume that everyone owns whatever they're writing about instead of having these laborious disclosures that are really just a charade um, and don't prove anything ultimately. Um, I think I, it's, I, I think I don't have quite as broad a view as you of, of um, like transparency and holdings. Like if I found out someone was like actively, actively like saying, I've never held this, I have nothing to do with it. And then I found out that they were holding coins, I would feel misled. Um, and I don't think it's crazy for like Jim Cramer's mad money to have to say like, I own these stocks. I think where we get into the kind of weird nether realm with Bitcoin is, are you disclosing I hold these stocks or are you disclosing I hold US dollars? Because reporters are not asked to disclose that they have life savings or how much are your <laughs> life savings. So it really depends on like what lens you see uh, crypto through. And even within crypto, I think disclosing that you have some of your life savings in Bitcoin is super different than disclosing that you uh, have a massive investment in a nascent ICO that you're pumping. Like these are kind of different forms of holdings that are being lumped in a way into a disclosure ideal. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think obviously given the, the, illiquidity of crypto markets and crypto assets in general um one or a series of journalistic pieces on a particular asset can cause significant price action um, and so maybe disclosures in that regard are more important there if you subscribe to the necessity and the benefits of of uh disclosures but as a as a roughly equivalent corollary we see journalists opine on forex markets all the time currency markets and one journalist could love a strong dollar or another journalist could want a weaker dollar for various economic uh, reasons and or they could love a different currency altogether or sort of have trade set up or something um or be holding a portion of that currency and uh should still disclose it. It's just a little bit of a redundant standard. I'm obviously I'm not an expert on um, financial disclosures. I just think across the board, if we're aiming for consistent standards, then the the highest level of consistency and uh, maybe optimizing disclosures and the communication of content, journalistic opinions, would be reached by simply abandoning disclosures altogether and assuming everyone owns whatever they write about instead of forcing journalists and other people to explain, yes, I do own this. No, I don't own that and whatnot. Um, but again, I have a lot of opinions and all of them are weakly held. And that's... Just one of them. <laughs> F 
Fair enough. Well, I um, I know you've had a long day, so I won't keep you too long. I'll ask you one last question, okay? Um, which is, and it's a big question. Um, you're an analyst, as we said. Um, you're tracking all kinds of different stuff. What are the major narratives? Let's just say narrowly within Bitcoin that you are keeping your eye on, or that you feel like are going to drive the the big picture shifts over the next year, and does government regulation, does what the U.S. Senate thinks um, or any other regulatory body thinks play into those big narratives? Or has, in some wacky way, regulation become something of an afterthought? Sure, sure. Um, so with regard to the United States first, obviously, we are still a powerful global hegemon. Um, and the things we legislate and regulate have significant effect on the rest of the global community. Um, within Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, there is a significant amount of uh, what's called regulatory arbitrage going on, um, and that will continue and intensify over the coming years, um, which are points that Peter noted in his testimony this morning. The United States does not want all of these innovators and developers fleeing the U.S. to other more f regulatory, regulatorily friendly countries. Um, so what the U.S. Or does, Puerto Rico. <laughs> or Puerto Rico, sure, U.S. <laughs> territories. Um, what the U.S. legislates does matter a lot. Um, anarchists and crypto anarchists and whatnot be damned. <laughs> um, as far as the narratives I'm paying attention to, um, I guess two in particular, and they sort of go in, well, not really in tandem, two things I'm, I'm thinking about are obviously the increasing institutional financialization of Bitcoin. Um, that's key from sort of a meme standpoint. Bitcoiners love to hype the institutionalization of Bitcoin as sort of a catalyst for the next leg of the hyper-Bitcoinization parabolic price pattern wave and whatnot. Um, but from a, a little bit more moderate uh, object objective standpoint, the institutionalization of a new asset or a new technology is important um, and probably will have a significant effect on the price within the next two to three years. Um, I'm a little bit bearish still. I think we have a decent way to fall a couple thousand dollars still. Um, maybe we'll see a three to four thousand dollar Bitcoin by Christmas. That's roughly my target um, based on some analysis. I'm not a technical analyst, but I sort of piggyback on some of the analysis that some of my good friends who are solid technical analysts have produced. Um, but also in addition to that, I think we're, we'll stay in this trend for a little while. Um, and I hope at least we don't hit another massive bear run or bull run like we've seen over the end of 2017. Um, because I think a lot of people still need to go to jail. Um, we have had a lot of crime and a lot of scams and good people um, investing in the space. Can we, good faith. can we have both for Christmas? People go to jail <laughs> and we get a bull run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's have both, please. Uh, That's the, the movie that I'd like to see. <laughs> Uh, I would love that too. Uh, well, first I love some cheap Bitcoin, accumulate a few more, and then and then we can send them all to jail and have a bull run. Um, and what a merry Christmas that would be! But seriously, I think people still need to go to jail. Um, there, uh, Nick Carter, he came on my show, I guess, a few months ago, and he said very correctly that this is like the past year and a half or two has been some of the most rampant 
unprosecuted wave of crime in the U.S. since like the boiler room chop shop equity sales uh, of the uh, 70s and 80s, I guess it was, um, that we watch movies about now. And people need to go to jail. And I hope this bear market continues until they do go to jail. And I think... So a lot of the things that Dr. Rubini said in his testimony today were accurate, especially in his opening comments, the first five minutes of his testimony. And I encourage listeners to go listen to that because it highlighted a lot of things that were true. A lot of what happens in this space is scammy and criminal. And if you're a criminal, regardless of whether you're an anarchist or not, you need to be held to account for your crimes by social punishment or by men with guns, um, the state. And... I hope that enforcement comes quickly. Um, Preston Byrne uh, said on a panel some time ago that the government is going to stop advising and start enforcing at some point or something to that effect. Um, And that I think we'll see that come ring very true um, in the the, the Q4 2018 and maybe Q1 and Q2 2019. Um, And then after everyone's locked up, then we can we can commence another (laughs) another bull run. Well, uh, just to ask this stupid question, um, if I were to divide the entire world of crypto into Bitcoin and not Bitcoin, and we can call not Bitcoin whatever we want, yeah, um, isn't most of the going to jail on the not Bitcoin side? Um, I would say probably. I would say definitely yes, um, but yeah, there's a lot of people who cash out in bitcoin and ethereum right, um, right, 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 with right. their scams but as far as project development and personalities building things oh definitely it's yeah. almost exclusively on the the not bitcoin side yeah it, it just strikes me that if like um if you get your christmas wish which is a bunch <laughs> of uh sealed indictments um ultimately that feels somewhat bullish for bitcoin and oh, yeah. that um I mean, I guess a bunch of like sealed crypto indictments is probably not great for the story as a whole, but the people who are being weeded out of the system are competing with Bitcoin or in some ways trying to scam their way into a market share that would otherwise be occupied by Bitcoin. So I guess if I see like a bunch of like um, ICO handcuffs getting slapped on, to (laughs) me, that feels like a good time to buy Bitcoin. Oh, I would, I would agree. Um, and I think it's been noted. I'm definitely not the first person to say what I'm about to say. That's been noted before on Twitter and in articles and whatnot. But people who sort of want the state to not attack Bitcoin and not regulate it and whatnot sort of revel in the fact that there is so much scammy activity going on for, for the reason that all of the regulators' attention is spent on punishing these scammers who, like you said, are in the not-Bitcoin sector of the space. And that sort of makes Bitcoin seem like the golden child out of all of this horse shit. Like, here's a project that's decentralized. People are building legitimate things. Venture capitalists are pouring money into legitimate projects. Um, some of the smartest minds are building and writing some of the best code out of the entire space in this one blockchain called Bitcoin. And the rest of it can go to hell and you can arrest them and burn all their code bases and whatnot. Um, People sort of enjoy the fact, somewhat facetiously, but also somewhat legitimately, that all of the regulators' attention should be spent on and is somewhat spent on um, mitigating and eliminating all these scams. And Bitcoin seems pretty good in comparison. 
Yeah, I feel like a little bit like um like, you know, people talk about the Ethereum amusement park. If yeah. I take all of crypto as amusement park, it's like you'd think people were regulating these like extremely elaborate uh, uh huge rides that are what the lure of the park is. But what you and I are actually talking about is like um like food and safety restrictions on the like fry cooks in the kitchen. Like yeah. Very little of the stuff that's going wrong has to do with the engineering of the roller coasters that are being built. It's more like 1800s fraud for the blockchain. This is my uh, my overriding belief about the crypto era is that we will later be able to realize that every scam of the crypto era existed in the 1800s <laughs> in some analog form. Yeah, I uh I agree. If if Bitcoin is an amusement park or a circus or something, everything else is a skinny old white man with a van offering free candy to kids. Um Absolutely. <laughs> it's like some off um some like off uh chili being served yes. out of the back of a concession stand. It's yep. uh, anyone reasonably who smelled it could have said that's not good food, but uh you know, we still need regulations in place that stop people from selling bad chili. Exactly, exactly. I, um, I'm not an anarchist by any means. I think small government is great. I hate a big state, but anarchy uh, has 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 some problems. Regu- regulation is good. Is the moral of the story? Yeah, I think everyone like basically like you know people don't want their like guns regulated. People don't want this regulated. But when you give the like food at a carnival example you're like all right a little bit of regulation there doesn't seem like a terrible thing like we don't necessarily need to leave this to total freedom exactly exactly um and i like i know i can think of a list of people in my head right now who might be listening to this and thinking well the government can't regulate bitcoin it's it's regulation proof and that's true but that's obviously limited to on-chain transactions and maybe some secondary and tertiary decentralized protocols and applications as well. But there's a lot more to this ecosystem than just that and regulating the on-ramps and off-ramps and essentially regulating the regulatable things about this space is good and the job of the men with guns. Um, so you may you may hate the men with guns and want to stick it to the man, and uh, a little bit of e- all of us wants to uh, stick it to the man. But the men with guns are there for a reason. Government is good. We're political animals, and having regulators do their job is a good thing, and we should appreciate it, not as many people too often do, sort of pardon the French, but shit on the coin center and all of the good work that they do because their work is valuable. Um, you may be an anarchist, but advocating for policymakers to have a light touch and educating them on these things um, has zero downside. It's all upside and we should appreciate their work. All right. Give some money to Coin Center. Uh, download Huddy Miner. Uh, subscribe <laughs> yes. to Zach's podcast and uh, have a great week. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, Zach. I know this has been a long day. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. This has been a blast. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, come back on when you've got something you need to get off your chest. I'm always here to listen. <laughs> will do. Will do. This episode was taped Thursday, October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $2,480. 
And that was Coin Talk. Uh, thanks to my absent but missed co-host, Jay Kang. Thanks to our editor, James Nicholson. Uh, thanks to the good people at Medium who helped make this show possible. You can find all of our episodes at medium.com slash cointalk. Get in touch. Hi at cointalk.show. Uh, we're experimenting with different formats. I know the episodes have been coming in a little less frequently recently. That will change. In fact, I'm planning to do another episode with a totally different voice about the Senate hearings uh, very shortly. So uh, watch out for the incoming doubleheader. Thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs>